I can't wait for Christmas. Have you ever heard anyone say that? Ever blurted out yourself? I'm sure I have from time to time. Uh, my name is Gerald. I'm the pastor of 60 plus and worship ministries here at Summit. And I love Christmas time. I do. I always have. I love the smells associated with Christmas. The crackling fire, fragrance of pine, fir, and cedar, the aroma from the baking, cinnamon, nutmeg, cloves, the smell of hot cocoa, roasted turkey and ham and pumpkin pie. Is it lunchtime yet? And I love the lights and the decorations. For me, Christmas truly is the most wonderful time of the year. But I think the thing I love most about Christmas is the anticipation, looking forward to what is to come. Two weeks ago, I was looking forward to spending time with some friends and family around a campfire, and then we went and looked for some trees that are now decorating our home. And many of us, over the next two weeks, we'll be anticipating get-togethers with loved ones, with family, where we will enjoy the foods and atmosphere associated with the smells and the decorations. And even if we say, I can't wait, we are waiting. These weeks and days leading up to Christmas are a time of waiting, looking forward with anticipation. And it's also a time of preparation. But if we're not careful, this time of preparation can become frenetic, can't it? We're fueled by pride and competition. We might feel the urge and need to spend lots and lots of time and money to outdo our neighbor's elaborate lights and lawn display with an even more elaborate lights and lawn display of our own. Or stressing about the perfect gift, the perfect meal, the perfect home. And this seems pretty prevalent in the culture in which we are surrounded by, isn't it? But we are the church. We are the church. And as such, I would like us to consider how our identity as the church should impact the way we invest ourselves and our resources, our time, our money, our attention in this season of waiting and preparing. This is the second week of Advent, and we are continuing our series, With Us While We Wait. Last week, Pastor Dave kicked us off and explained that while this season is often associated with the anticipation of celebrating the birth of Jesus at Christmas, for us, Advent is actually intended to get us in touch with why we need Christmas in the first place, why we need Jesus to come. And as we grow to understand that, it leads us to anticipate and to long for Jesus to return. When God will fulfill his whole purpose and make things right. That's what we are waiting for. And that's what this season of Advent is intended to draw our attention to. And I need Advent. I truly do. And it's probably fair to say that we all do. I need Advent because sometimes I don't long for the return of Jesus. I have a fairly privileged life. I enjoy good health. In my family, we have a comfortable, warm home. We never have to go without a meal if we don't want to. Hashtag blessed, right? But I was chatting with a friend recently, and he asked me, how has Christmas changed for you over the years? Good question. 
The way we experience Christmas changes as time goes by, right? Through, this, through several stages, from my own childlike wonder to experiencing that and being reacquainted with that in the eyes of my own children and now in the beautiful eyes of my little baby granddaughter. But as the years go by, it has gotten more difficult to get everyone together. People move away. People pass away. I remember my first Christmas without my dad and more recently without my brother. My experience of Christmas really has changed over the years. Disappointment and heartache now accompany the joy. I still love Christmas. I still look forward to it. But it's fair to say that this season is also filled with poignant reminders that all is not right with our world. And I know that there's people here today dreading this season. Maybe even finding it difficult to to remember the last time that you looked forward to Christmas at all. And if you could, you might fast forward right to the end of the month or right till spring if you can, I guess. But you can't. But you're trying to avoid Christmas as much as humanly possible. Closing your eyes, guarding your heart, holding your breath, and longing for it all to be over. And while the world around us may tend to try to gloss over the pain and the hardships, staying busy, distracted from the uncomfortable and the unwelcome, We are the church. We need Advent to reroute us in our identity and remind us that the greatest privilege we enjoy in life is that we are the church. We are God's chosen people, and as such, what we live for, what we wait for, is the fulfillment of his promises and his purposes. And the wonder, the vision of that, of the full restoration of God's original design untainted, unblemished by human sinfulness, makes us long for Jesus to come quickly. J.R.R. Tolkien writes, We all long for Eden, for God's perfect design, and are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature is soaked with the sense of exile. We live as exiles right now, waiting for Jesus to return. Our lectionary readings this morning will lead us to think about how we are to spend this time of exile, this season of waiting, in anticipation of and preparation for Jesus coming. And our first reading today is found in the Gospel of Mark. And if you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 1. We're going to start looking at one biblical character, John the Baptist. Fleming Rutledge points out in her great book on Advent that John the Baptist is the foremost figure on Advent because his life was devoted to pointing to and preparing the way for Jesus. So Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 1, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. 
So what do we see here? What's John's message? Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And while we wait, this is what we as the church are about. We get to prepare the way for the Lord, to make straight paths for him. We get to point to Jesus in recognition of all that he has already done and in anticipation of what he is ultimately going to do when he returns. So this morning we're going to consider three ways that we can be investing ourselves, our attention, our resources as we wait and prepare the way for the Lord. We're going to look at confession and repentance, comfort and relief, and community and relationships. So first, confession and repentance. When John the Baptist arrives on the scene, he calls people to confess their sins, to repentance. Confession is admitting that we've made mistakes, that we've fallen short of God's standards. And repentance, turning away from patterns of behavior that aren't pleasing to God or good for us, and turning towards God, recognizing that we need his help. Now, this idea can be a bit foreign in our culture, can't it? We live, or sorry, like a lot of people, we see they prefer to amend their standards as they go along. No apologies, no regrets. But we are the church. We don't make the rules, but we know who does. And as we live our lives learning to follow the Jesus way more closely, we become more and more convinced that his ways are best. But that still doesn't mean that we always get it right. So we need confession and repentance. Now, as I've been thinking about this, it seems to me that confession really starts with just being honest, being honest with ourselves and being honest with God about ourselves. But sometimes we can be uncomfortable with that, can't we? Maybe we think, can I really be honest with God? Maybe we're embarrassed about what we've done. Or maybe it's because we're disappointed in God. We're frustrated by his seeming inactivity or unresponsiveness to our cries. How are we supposed to express that? Are we even allowed to tell God that we're angry with him? Well, I recently watched a short clip by Tim Keller where he helped me understand this better. And he was talking about Job from the Bible. Many of you are familiar, but Job had many horrible things happen to him, and he had lost a lot in a short time. And as he was processing this experience, Job ended up saying some really nasty things to God. But later, God still commended him. Keller's explanation was this. Even though Job was angry, he was still talking to God. He was still expressing his frustration to God. Despite all that he had lost, Job had not turned his back on God entirely. And in some way, he was still waiting on God. Part of our preparation while we wait is confession and repentance, coming to God honestly and openly. And I don't know how this is playing out or has played out in your life, but for me, when I'm in times of confession and repentance, I'm reminded God sees everything anyway. I can't hide. I'm not hiding anything from him. When I sin, when I do something that's selfish or unkind, I have to own up to it. Trying to hide it from him just makes it worse. So I confess honestly. And God forgives completely. When I'm angry, when I feel like justice has not been served towards me or my loved ones or in the world around me, God knows that too. And I could become embittered and try and hide myself to distance myself from God, but that has never gone well for me at all. 
So I come to him honestly in my frustration. And whether it's a day when I feel the need to express myself in detail, or maybe a day when I realize he already knows and I can just shut up, either way, I'm reminded that his thoughts and ways are far beyond mine. That he's God, and I'm not. That his design for the world and for our lives, for my life, is a lot different than anything I could come up with on my own, and a lot better. And through this, somehow I'm also reminded that his design for our lives and the world is a lot different and a lot better than what we are currently experiencing. All is not right, and God knows that. And so we wait on him, and he's with us while we wait. And this confession and repentance business needs to be a daily part of the Christian life because we need to stay on God's page. We need our hearts, our desires, our agendas to be in alignment with his heart, his desires, and his agenda. This is how he works in us when we let him. And we need to be consistent with this, to stay connected, to stay engaged, to wait on the Lord expectantly. Because it seems like almost every day we are barraged, finding out about really hard stuff going on in our world, in our city, and in our neighborhoods, maybe even in our own home or in our church. And it can seem relentless and lead us not only to wonder what God is up to, but if he even cares, is he even there? But we are the church. And as we spend daily time with God, honestly, pouring out our hearts, studying his word, seeking his heart, remembering all that he has already done, and humbly waiting expectantly for what he has promised, we find hope. And we need hope. Fleming Rutledge writes, Hope persists in spite of the clearly recognized facts because it is anchored in something beyond. We are the church, and we have the hope that is only found in Jesus, that he came and that he's coming again. He always keeps his promises. This is the hope that everyone needs. So while we wait, we prepare ourselves through confession and repentance, connecting deeply with the heart of God. And secondly, we look to offer comfort and relief. Now, our expression of the church here just happens to be positioned in a pretty comfortable part of the world and of our city, right? We're surrounded by wealth, some entitlement, some expectation of ease, these alluring things that are competing for our attention. But we are the church. We are the church, and as such, we have a purpose that extends beyond ourselves, beyond the property lines of our homes, and even beyond our church community. We are uniquely positioned to be ambassadors of hope in our community, and in our world. Dave mentioned last week that Advent is associated with darkness. And there, is a lot of, there are a lot of people who are currently experiencing a lot of darkness in a lot of different ways. Darkness can be frightening. Darkness can be overwhelming. Darkness can be depressing. Lead to hopelessness. And we have the hope of Jesus to bring light to that darkness, to comfort, to bring relief. But how do we do that? How do we shine light into the darkness? Well, Dave also spoke to this last week. He said that we, as the church, are to respond to the hurt and sorrow and injustice around us first by praying, 
praying for the hurting, and then by seeking out how God would have us participate in bringing comfort and relief to the hurting. And John the Baptist talked about this too. The Gospel of Luke expands on John's message from, cha- from Mark chapter 1. In Luke 3, we see John warning the people of Israel, who seem fairly entitled to receive God's favor and reward. And he says, you need to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. This repentance, this turning away from sinful behavior and turning towards God results in fruit being produced. Now, when we bought our home in Kamloops, one of the features we were excited about was the fruit trees. But we quickly learned that in order to produce good fruit, it takes effort. It takes intentionality, and that implies to the fruit that John is talking about here as well. What should we do then, the crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. And then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Now, in the world we live in, A prevalent pattern is that people look after and provide for their families, sometimes by whatever means necessary. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. But we are the church. And how are we instructed to stand apart here? By sharing what we have with those who need it. We don't elevate our needs above the needs of others. We don't hoard wealth. We don't participate in unjust practices. We actively seek the well-being of everyone. And by doing so, we become agents of comfort and relief to the hurting and to the needy. This is how we wait for Jesus' return. We prepare the way and we point to Jesus by living like him, by caring for the needs of others. Jesus is the only true source of comfort and relief. Life apart from Jesus is not real life at all. So we point people to Jesus. We share the gifts he gives us, and we share the message that Jesus is coming back to finish what he started. We invite people in. Our second reading today is from the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3, where we are reminded that what we are currently experiencing won't last forever because Jesus is coming back, and we are encouraged to prepare. 2 Peter 3, starting at verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, What kind of people ought you to be? We ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. God's desire is that everyone come into relationship with him. 
to live holy and godly lives, looking forward to Jesus' return, to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. That is where true comfort and relief is truly found. And we get to invite people to experience that. So as we wait, first, we prepare ourselves by consistent confession and repentance. And second, we prepare for and point to Jesus' return by offering and making known the comfort and relief that he desires everyone to experience. And thirdly, we invest ourselves in community and relationships. We live in a country that doesn't understand the concept of community particularly well. Studies indicate that only around one-third of Canadians have what they would consider a meaningful relationship with their immediate neighbors. But we are the church. And we exist for community, for relationships. We exist to reflect God's nature. And God is a relational God. Like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in perfect relational unity, God is also working that out in us. And we see that, don't we? Look around the room for a minute. For many of us, there are people here who, apart from God's intervention in our lives, would not necessarily be the people that we would have chosen to invest relational energy into. But look at us now. As we have opened ourselves up to God's work in us, strangers become brothers and sisters. And the church is strengthened as a result. Turn in your Bibles now back to the book of Isaiah. Our third reading of the day is from Isaiah chapter 40, where we will read the first five verses. Starting at verse 1, it says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. True biblical community brings comfort, right? We experience that. Verse 2, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, to God's people, to the bride of Christ, and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Did you hear that? All people will see the glory of the Lord together. How does this happen? How will we see the glory of the Lord together? Because God is at work bringing us together. That's his plan. That's his desire to bring unity, community, relationships. And for us to work toward community and relationships begins again just by opening ourselves up to what he is already doing. And the church, his church, we are strengthened as a result. He creates unity and multiplicity through the fact that there's a bunch of us with different gifts, with different strengths, and he's bringing us together into this community with a common purpose. God is creating and enabling a powerful force that he is using to bring glory to himself. We get to see this together. And when God is most glorified, we are most satisfied. The world around us longs to be satisfied and is desperately seeking meaning and hope, begging for something to help make sense of this world that seems to be off kilter and out of control. 
And this pursuit of happiness, this search for meaning, has led to and is continuing to lead to some horrible choices that lead to horrible consequences. But we are the church. We are, as the Apostle Peter puts it, God's special possession, who declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. That's our story. That satisfaction, meaning, hope, is found in one place and in one person, in Jesus alone. And as we embrace biblical community and relationships, we get to tell this story together. Theologian Stanley Auerwitz writes, we are storied people because the God who sustains us is a storied God, whom we come to know only by having our character formed appropriate to God's character. And God forms us into community as he shapes our character to resemble his. But that doesn't mean that we just sit back and let God do his thing. We are also called to be active participants in this. We need to contribute. We need to reach out. And sometimes that reaching out might look like checking in on a family or a brother or a sister that maybe you haven't seen in a while or you know they're going through a tough time. We talked about this earlier, that we pray expectantly, looking for how God would have us share what he has given us to, to encourage others, to help others. And I know that so many of you love to do this. We saw a beautiful picture of this on Friday night when we hosted our city for a night in Bethlehem. And so many of you were pitching in wherever help was needed to make this a tremendous success. So yes, reaching out can be just that, seeing where you can help. But sometimes, reaching out means being intentional about asking for help. I see some squirming. We're not really comfortable with this, are we? We don't like asking for help. But consider this. What if one of the gifts that you bring to this body, to this community, is your weakness, your need, your illness, your hurt? It's a hard concept for us to wrap our heads around, isn't it? People like to show their strengths, to only reveal what they want you to see. Weakness and need do not fit into that category. But we are the church. God confronts our pride as part of how he shapes our character. And part of how he shapes our community is in the way we get to care for one another's needs. A friend of mine loaned me the book, A Man Called Uva. And I thought it looked like a really interesting story. So I put down the book and watched the movie. <laughs> Renamed A Man Called Otto. Now, I'm not, too, I'm not afraid to admit that I'm a fairly emotional person. I tend to be brought to tears on a regular basis. But watching this movie, I was a mess. Puddles of tears were forming as I watched the story of a curmudgeonly man who had lost hope. But the way his hope was restored was by somebody who was humble enough to ask for his help. Hope was restored and community was established, not because of someone offering their strength, but their weakness, their need. Don't be afraid or too proud to ask for help. True community requires humility. And humility is a beautiful characteristic that God desires for each one of us. And as he shapes our character, he's working to develop that in us as well. As we 
come to look more and more like Jesus, our humble king. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up now. But this is how we wait, being shaped into the image of Jesus. And he's with us while we wait, teaching and helping us spend this time of waiting, preparing for his coming. So consider how much does the way you are spending this time waiting for Jesus to return align with how Jesus would like you to spend this time? We are the church. We know what we're waiting for. We know the truth. And that truth sets us free. Free from getting bogged down by the cares and frustrations prevalent around us. And free to point to the truth, to Jesus. So we thank you, Jesus, that you give life, that you are love, that you bring light to this darkness, that you give hope, that you restore every heart that is broken, and you invite us to participate. Great are you, Lord.